Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. What's up, girlies? This is Office Hours Live, episode 76. Letting you know that Keisha's on vacation, so no need to panic. She needs a break, and so we're going to do this today. Uh, I'm, I'm Chris, the producer usually, and I'll be keeping an eye out for questions on YouTube and also in the chat. And so if you guys get some questions in early and we'll try to get them over to Seth and Virginia and Dexter. Uh, Virginia and Dexter from Medusa's Eden joining us today. And yeah, we're excited to have them. We did a case study on them about uh, nine months ago. Sitting nine months ago, I know we were out there over a year ago, but uh, excited to check in with these guys again. Seth, why don't you take it away? Yeah, we're here with Virginia and Dexter today. Uh, they own and operate Medusa's Eden out of Maine, and uh, they're our grower of the month per se <laughs> this month. So. Thought we'd kind of bring them on and kind of talk about your growing experience and kind of the the evolution of that over the last about well, year year and a half or so, I guess. So you guys have had Arroya. And go ahead, Dexter. Yeah, it's been a, it's been quite a process. It's learning how to grow this plant. It's really uh, it's a journey, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, I guess, you know, for the listeners, do you guys want to talk about getting your, uh, well, legal grow up and running and how that journey has been for you about Um, getting your, uh, it's been good. Well, it's been a lot of uh, running and how that journey has been for you. You know, there's a lot of getting regulations and figuring out what to grow, how to grow, um, what type of soil? I mean, it's a, there's a lot that goes into trying to figure out even how to put the facility together. Um, I didn't have a real any growing background before um, getting into this venture, so you know, it's kind of learn on the fly. <laughs> gotcha. And, uh, so all the data from the sensors is super helpful, considering mm-hmm. like I've been super new in this, so it's just and I've like. For the last four years of college, they're all science classes. So I'm just like very data driven. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I mean, I know one thing you guys have definitely navigated is like, okay, it's a, I always call it like the Gen 1 or Gen 2 or Gen 3 build out, right? Yeah, for uh, sure. Yours has been accelerated compared to a lot of what we see here out here on the West Coast, right? Uh, the yeah, market happened in Maine and it got competitive quick. Very quick. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's a hard saturated market. I think it's like anything, uh, I think Booth weeds itself out. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And I know like just working with you guys, you've made huge strides on things like environmental control, making sure you've got the right equipment to achieve all the set points you want. And uh, I know that's, that's often a challenge at a certain size, right? Definitely. You guys have definitely taken it from pretty small and slowly scaling up how much weed you're pulling down, bringing the quality up, and For going sure. through some of those pitfalls. Like I'm sure uh, you could probably comment on how fun it was to get your environment dialed in on the first time. Yeah, I mean, when you just yeah. finally start getting like weed that looks like it's supposed to, oh man, it feels so good. <laughs> it feels so good. I mean, it's uh, we're we're still trying to figure things out here and there. We're always phenol hunting. 
So that's mm-hmm. like a really hard situation because pretty much most of our runs are always some sort of pheno hunt, like that we're going through or just have, you know, have few plants of one type. And that's, that's hard, you know, having different cultivars like that is very, very difficult um, to grow. And if it wasn't for having, you know, a little bit of data on each, each zone, we should have more, but I mean, we try to do the best we can with what we have mm-hmm. and it, it helps, you know, it really, it's interesting. It helps you kind of weed stuff out quicker and figure out like what, you know, what you need, what you don't need. Like, I don't know, you know, it's hard because, when you're looking at something in a room, it's like they all kind of look the same. It's it's hard to kind of figure out like what's going to end up dried weight versus, you know, oh, they look so big in the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. And then repeating that, right? Like that's one thing sure. I find. Once you start going down the road of, you know, crop registration and collecting data, you can really streamline that pheno hunt to like production strain process. You're not spending six runs in a full-size room trying to figure out how to grow this thing you're going into it with a pretty good idea and now usually it's actually i mean it's getting easier every time you grow that strain but again instead of six times it might be hey this is the third time we've ever grown this but we just blew it up to a whole room and now it's easy i can make all these changes i want to or or even a whole zone right that's for some reason i feel like I feel like I got to see it like two or three times to see what it's going to end up really looking like. Like the first time it, it's not fully accurate, or at least in my opinion for our, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it is, but I don't know. I've just noticed that I want it to look the same all the time. So I want to make sure that it's going to, you know what I mean? So yeah. if you're going to run in, it's going to look good a couple of times and then change. I don't know. Yeah, and that's that's something that's always kind of interesting too. When you're doing pheno hunting, if you're popping a bunch of seeds, pulling males, all that fun stuff, you you end up with sprouted plants, and sometimes that first round of cuts will look a little bit different, structure wise yeah. and morphology wise, compared to that seed you just sprouted. And is that something you guys run into quite a bit? You go like, hey, we made these twelve selections, but after cloning, we're seeing like you know half well, of them that we actually like. Yeah, well, we well we actually we we haven't been doing any like regular seeds. We we just kind of do feminized right now, so okay. we're not having to just like select males per, per okay. se. But um, to, I mean, selecting what we do like, yeah, I think that it it um it helps. Yeah, yeah, just streamlining. You at least have some meaningful data, right? Like that's it's that's sure. one huge thing when you're bringing sure. genetics in. It's always like, okay, so and so said it was going to grow this way, right? Mm-hmm. but you have no insight into how they actually grow. Yeah. And I, I feel know. like that feel like a lot of the new genetics are coming up out of LEDs and you know, that's just not what we are flowering under yet. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, has, everything has to do with it, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that whole thing. Like, yeah, this one's a heavy feeder or this one stretches a long time, stretches shorter. And it's like, well, what, what were you doing with it? Yeah. You know, and sure. I, quite frequently where someone gets a strain they pull it in and they're going like man i can't get this thing to finish up but the guy i got it from says i swear it's an eight-week strain it's like well you might be growing quite a bit differently than that other person and if you don't have any kind of numbers to put on the most you can do is say hey like what do you you know what kind of set points are you running on your environment um and what what kind of media are you running it in you know i'm sure sure you guys too like you mentioned a lot of these new genetics are coming out of breeding pretty much to grow under leds um yeah. just the market's moving over to them right bulbs sure. are literally going off the market all over the place you won't be able to get them someday yeah for sure but, it looks but good the, i mean environmental it's, it's probably a positive direction and i hate my electric bill so 
<laughs> yeah, if, if only you saved a bunch of money running LEDs, right? Yeah, Usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, now let's grow more weed. For sure. I mean, that's that's the real goal anyways, you know? Oh, yeah. A little more quality Absolutely. weed. So. Absolutely. Um, so you guys are on the East Coast. One question I have, and I always love talking to you guys about this, is are you seeing a lot more uh, unique strains come in on the East Coast and more local favorites, or is it, you know, always kind of trailing a little half a year behind or so? the west um, coast i mean i think that there's a lot of sour everyone's sour everyone wants cushions that's definitely a thing for sure being from new york um specifically but i feel like the hype is real everywhere you know i feel mm. like if it's if it's hot in california it kind of is trickling down here pretty quick if to the people who know you know what i mean mm. to the the growers who are like tapped into the market there. I feel like California in a lot of ways or the West Coast, I don't want to say dictates what we're doing out here, but it sets trends. Hmm. So maybe with you know new legalization that will change. I could see oh, that absolutely. Change, you know, with, yeah, Cal- I don't know. Well California is a genetic powerhouse. I mean they've they've had a lot of these genetic for a long time. It's been easier to keep them there than pretty much anywhere else in the u.s for a long yeah. time so they definitely have the leg up uh, i was just asking because i'm getting more excited i'm getting excited to see more breeders coming out of like michigan and uh, i know new york's coming up in the game yeah got maine um i can't wait to see some more of that local stuff i know out here on the west coast it's kind of wild there's so much hype around like right now runts is yeah, just I the crazy that... most popular anything crossed with runs right yeah i mean i think i agree yes for sure I think there's a lot of good there's a lot of good breeders everywhere you know Skunkfoot farms mm. he's out of maine there's a lot of really good good quality genetics who breed for their location you know what i mean and for resin production too so i feel like mm-hmm. depending on what you're growing for you know what i mean some people want to grow for hash production so oh absolutely yeah, it's, it's, yeah that's that's one thing i think that's kind of neat about uh just the east especially new york coming online with such a huge population um it's not that cannabis culture hasn't existed there before and people are also used to paying i feel like a premium for product compared to like california for instance so every time i visited i thought it was really neat um you know there's growers kind of all over the quality range but it seems like the market demand has been for higher and higher quality right out of the gate well that's great i feel like that's that's, yeah i think that the higher higher quality I mean, the East Coast dictates the West Coast. You know, I feel like the East Coast consumption is dictating what the West Coast is growing because. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's just how it's been, it seems like, in the traditional market. So I don't know. I think that it'll be interesting to see the change, you know, when I don't know. We'll see. It'll be it'll be cool to see these next couple of years to see what's going to happen. Even like the like the Midwest and some people who like people who have growing in their, you know, years of generations of dna you know what i mean kansas mm-hmm. uh, somebody's middle nebraska you know what i mean so. <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah there's going to be some interesting some yeah. stuff coming out especially as like uh culturally we see you know i want to say more acceptance cannabis has been fairly accepted for a long time but more uh more socially normal so people are talking about it more you yeah. know there's all yeah, these not- little pockets of america that have been kind of kind of sequestered right yeah, no longer I'm a criminal. It's 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 cool. 
Oh yeah, there's a uh, uh, there's there's a company around here that's had one strain that I've never seen anywhere else, and that guy's had that cut for like twenty something years living here. He's just yeah. never been a big commercial producer, but that strain is pretty special. Yeah, you know, I've never smelt another I've never smelt another another nug that smelled like a peach cigarillo when I cracked the jar. <laughs> Wow. And it's like, man, this is interesting. Where'd you get this? It's like, oh, a bag 20 years ago. Like, that's interesting, you know? And a lot of that stuff is out there. I think there's some really well-kept secrets still, though. For sure. I think that that's yeah, really true. Out. I think that's totally true. You know, in all these different pockets of America, mm-hmm. you know, all over. I know there's, like, you know, different sour cuts from bags of sour. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see, like, what comes out, what was preserved, what could be cleaned up. Oh, it'll be cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the most important things is just getting that variety because, you know, as we see commercialization, we're seeing some of the same things that have happened in other crops, you know, maybe not quite to the extreme that you see in like apples, but we're, we're kind of seeing commercialization leaning more towards a smaller and smaller group of lineages. So as time goes on, I think it's up to growers to put the demand on breeders to say, hey, we want stuff that's not just something new across with your same old lines. We want new lines all the time and we want it to be distinctly different. Yeah, I think it's, I think it'll definitely be interesting because, you know, it's not like a, I mean, it is, I don't know, it's a commodity, it's a fruit, like, but if you compare it to grapes, it's like, I'm sure they pick the grape that yields the most. I mean, I'm sure sweetness has a factor, plays a factor into it, but. I mean, cannabis should, you know, terpenes, I mean, yield, I mean, all of it should play, uh, you know, how it smokes. All that is important. Like, that should all go into, like, whether you're making it or not, whether you keep it. And I think a lot of it, I mean, yeah, you're as good as your grower, right? Absolutely. No, at the end of the day, um, this whole thing is, I probably said it too much at this point, but horticulture is half art and half science. You know, I can, we can talk numbers all day. But if you're not good with your hands at actually touching these plants, you're not going to have a good result. I mean, I've personally met cultivators who really, uh, really do well all the way through their flower runs, but they, you know, struggle with cloning, for instance. And that's like their big Achilles heel is like trying to get that in line. So they're buying a lot of cuts and, you know, moving on from that, like it's tough. It's a skill you got to develop. And if you're not good at it, um, you're not going to have success. Yeah. So at the end of the day, yeah, you've got to, you got to have just an awesome grower and one that's really dedicated to perfecting the craft, you know, and half the battle right now is staying in the game. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> we all got to like, I'm, I'm always looking in my mom room. Well, my mom room slash my bedroom slash my clone room. And I always hear you in the back of my head saying, you're going to need a mom room, <laughs> 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 like a dedicated mom room. And it's like, you're so right. You know what I mean? And, I'm, you know, we'll get there one day, but it's it's true. You know, if, if you can't, you know, you're only as good as your parameters, too, and what you got to work with. So, oh, know, absolutely. it's all important. Yeah, and then you start to, once you've got data, really start to uh, break down, like, what are the limitations of my facility? Yeah, I know working with you guys, you, you're you a mom-and-pop operation. It's a small business. Yeah. You don't, you don't, don't have, you it. know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You guys don't have a huge cash pile to go like, oh man, we need this. Let's just get it. So yeah, in, mm-hmm. inevitably you end up making some tough choices. 
And I think one thing that, you know, although we talk about either yield or quality a bunch, there there is an important component into looking at where your business is at and saying, hey, what are our goals here? Our goals to produce the best flour we can, of course, but that's going to take time. We've got to get our facility dialed in, our production mm-hmm. processes, and then icing on the cake is finding those genetics. Yeah. Oh, genetics is, I think, I think genetics is the number one thing. But like mm-hmm. when I think about it, right? So if genetics is first, but if you don't know what's going on, <clears throat> like we can't a- afford to be, to have one month off. We run a cannabis delivery service as well. So mm. we can't um, we can't lose a crop for a month. Otherwise, we won't have fresh product for our phone. So mm-hmm. like, being able to not look at the substrate and know what's happening in the soil with the data, is cra- it would be crazy for me, I think, as a grower, to not have that information, to be able to make those changes on this crop now, opposed to have mm-hmm. to wait until it finished. You know what I mean? It's, it helps you learn on the, on the job, I feel like, a lot better. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that's what I try to get people to a place to is like, hey, you know, everyone wants to make it in this business. Most people do have the same goal, which is to grow something that they can be really proud of and push on the market. Right. But then the other side of it, we've got to deal with is making it to that point. Like, yeah, you know, anytime you get a new facility, I, I don't care if you are the world's best grower. <laughs> you know, give yourself some padding. Don't pre-sell that sure, first yeah. run a price that you're not going to you know you're going to put out that product and they go we won't pay for it yeah and you can't rush it you know you can't rush secure you got to take take your time in every step you know oh like yeah that you don't well like when, I, when i first got into commercial growing um you know gg4 and blue dream were huge yeah and everyone had it and you know what we weren't stoked on growing it because we had 20 other strains that were way more interesting mm-hmm but we white labeled a lot of blue dream and a lot of GG four because that kept the doors open. Yeah. If we would have like been too high up with the ego and been like, no, we're just going to grow the best of the best. Uh, that company wouldn't be in business anymore because they wouldn't have been able to keep up with market demand. You know, some of those early lessons, like fortunately in Maine, you guys can control your own distribution. You know, for some of these businesses, like, yeah, maybe you have some, you know, really good marketing and your first runs all pre-sold, but you short those orders. And now you've got a lot of customers that aren't going to want to do business with yeah. you again. True. And so there's all these little nuances outside of just growing that I think people overlook. And I know you guys are in a point where it's kind of funny where you're like, yes, the growing is the part we really want to focus on, but God, we got to set up all this other stuff first. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, we finally yeah. just got our first printed bag. So it's like, you know, it's, it's been years coming, but when you, it's all those other things that you don't think about when you're running a business, you know, that mm-hmm. you need. That you need to put into or you need to just sell to someone cheaper for them to yeah. do it you know absolutely so, yeah you, you've got to stay in business you won't you won't be able to get better at it if you have to quit tomorrow for sure and i feel like you know i i don't know we put all this work into popping these seeds and trying to figure out like what's good i feel like we should you know care about it we should care about what it looks like when it gets to the end consumer and all that I think it's important. yeah none of it matters if it doesn't sell right for sure you know, in, in this, yeah and in this day and age um there's so much variety out there like i know that's hitting starting to hit the east coast more and more like just this year but people have a pretty broad choice now you, yeah, sure. you can go to a store and see 30 different brands in one place and at that point it's you know it's uh i like to compare it to like the craft beer and wine industries 
there's a lot of really cool things going on, but you see a lot of turnover in specific products, uh, brands, labels, product lines they're selling just because, you know, they got to keep it fresh. And also if you put one out that's subpar, people will remember your failures with a lot or mm-hmm. just a lot more <laughs> and make their buying choices based on that than on your successes. Definitely. Yeah. You know, it's a bummer, but yeah, that's, sure. I think, especially, you know, when people go nowadays, now that we're hitting, you know, we've hit legalization, it's been accepted for a while. The, the expectation's higher. If you go to yeah. a store and get some kind of booth, you're like, what, what year is it? <laughs> you know, for sure. 10 years ago is a different yeah. game. $60 sucks. Yeah, yeah. And you're stoked if you had an option, you know? You're like, I yeah. can choose from three. Whoa. And now it's like that. Right. Like I, think that, I think that there's like, I don't know. There's a lot of that. It's it's hard because there's so much to grow. So you got to figure out like what, I just grow what I want. What I think is like, you know, going to be good. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. It's hard to, to <laughs> like, I don't know. It's hard to get behind the hype stuff. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I do. Sometimes it's great, but sometimes yeah, it's absolutely. Not, so. Exactly. And it's always riding that line, right? Sometimes we got to balance sure. between what what the hype wants and then also like, all right, save some room for our own ideas. Yeah. So that's how that all starts, right? Nothing gets popular unless someone puts it out there. For sure. For sure. I mean, at the end of the day, I want to be able to smoke it. I want it to be like, <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm growing it so it can be fire so I can smoke it. <laughs> absolutely so that's like well, the you, first and foremost the main goal so it's well, not that uh, i don't really care about it <laughs> well i'll go ahead and say that a lot of the people that aren't continuing to stay in the business are people that don't care as much about their end quality product passion is where it's at in this industry sure. even if you've got a great business plan if you don't cultivate passion in your organization and pride in what you do it's going to reflect in your end product and unlike other manufactured goods or even uh we'll just compare it back to the beer and wine industry uh aging wine can take quite a while but making wine doesn't take that long it's not i mean as long as you have good grapes to start with that the wine making process is much shorter yeah we you know we unless you're making you know some sort of extract we don't have that post-production to work with the products so that everything leading up to that dried product is extremely important you can't do very much to save it, you know? I mean, whereas with some other manufactured goods where the key points on uh, nailing certain things, you know, like in beer making, all these heat processes and stuff going on, if you miss the slightest thing, you can throw flavor off. Yeah. But that's a couple hour process for the brewing and then just staying clean and running a decent facility for fermentation. Here, yeah, we've got three months where any not any hiccup but a whole host of different small problems right can completely mm-hmm. ruin that crop. oh my god and not even it's not even only like what's going on inside your room it's going what's going on outside we grow in a, <laughs> we, we grow in like an old barn so it's not really yep. well insulated or built i mean you know my nephew you know ended up you know making some of it for god's sake so it's it's <laughs> it could be better built for lack of a better word and hey. When it's outside, like you can, you feel it when it's cold. Where in Maine, it's when it's cold. It's you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's extra energy consumption is put on the building, and it's hard. You know, it's got one wall that faces like the backside, so it's just like that one that has to be insulated again because all the time it just gets colder. And so mm-hmm. if there's too much of a humidity swing in an area, you know, it just creates issues. 
and pockets of, of inconsistencies, no good. But you don't realize that, you know, it's, yep. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I think we're a really good size because we don't have a huge facility. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. small, but it's not huge. So we can manage ourselves, which is nice, you know. It, yep. I don't know. You know, I think it lets us able to focus on, you know, quality more and and grow what we want, opposed to grow what's going to just, you know, pay the bills. Absolutely. We used to grow Juju for all the time. It's just like, I don't know. <laughs> Hey, I, I still love you. <laughs> it was beautiful. I mean, everyone loved it and it sold, but it got boring. And you can only smoke it for so yep. long. Yep. Know. And then I, I think that's another important thing that people overlook is like, you know, hey, when you're scaling a business, cannabis is definitely not unique. There's a, yeah, a micro yeah. level you can operate on. And then your next jump is, unfortunately, like if you guys want to expand, you need to up your canopy squip space like buy enough to justify the you know labor you got to bring in right yeah and that yeah. can be so well, hard think, to balance yeah i think like what i mean what we're doing is building the brand opposed to just growing weed you know what i mean and white labeling it to from new york so eventually we'd hopefully like to get in the new york market i know that they're trying to figure out everything done mm -hmm. Get get somewhere, maybe like this somewhere else. That would be probably our expansion goal. Just you know, keep it small, replicate this pretty much. Yeah, that is one thing I'm very excited to see in the Northeast because it's such a, you know, compared to out west, everyone's kind of crunched in. Like you're not yeah. that far away from New York City where you're at, or Boston. No, for sure. You know. Yeah. And I and think, I think uh, yeah, brands are going to spread faster and have more opportunities to be an interstate brand just because of that closeness. And I mean, you see it in all other kinds of industries, right? People want a local product and there a hundred mile circle encompasses a lot of different local people, which yeah. is cool in its own right. For sure. Well, I mean, that's kind of the whole, like, you know, farmer's market thing, farm, fresh farm, mm -hmm. local, hundred miles or less. That's cool. You know, yep. you're supporting the people around you and you know where the money's going, that you're spending. And I think that's important. <clears throat> I don't know. Kind of cool. Oh yeah. Well, and I think that's one awesome thing about the cannabis market in general is there, uh, because it's such a quality driven space, there is still a lot of demand for the boutique growers. You do Fresh have up. your bigger growers and, you know, in certain places we're also seeing situations, just I always compare it to the craft beer market, but with some of these bigger MSOs and stuff coming in and buying like, you know, a certain amount of, of uh, equity and interest into some of these smaller brands because they're looking at it going like, Hey, we got to like, there's a whole market range. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point we've got to decide, okay, we are we going to dominate the low price range market range? Are we going to dominate the high price? Or if I have this big facility that's putting out a minus, yeah, is it worth it for me to like try to upgrade that whole facility and make my a plus herb or Hey, should I farm that out? to some of these boutique grows and maybe actually be like, Hey, I'm going to help support them financially and give them a distribution network and also realize that there's space for both of us in the market. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think all that's important and that's cool for sure. I think that like the number one thing should be trying to go quality if you can, you know, obviously mm -hmm. it's, it's hard. It's like the larger it gets, the harder it is. So maybe not everyone is trying to grow large scale crap, you know, you can't like large scale craft cannabis. That's not a thing. 
<laughs> I mean, it, it, it only is to an extent, right? Yeah, the, exactly. The bigger, I mean, exactly. The bigger, it's an oxymoron. It doesn't kind of make sense when you say it like that. But yeah, you're right. It's hard. The, the it's bigger like, the room gets, and it, and it doesn't scale the same way as other products, right? Like if you're building cars, the bigger your factory and your machines are, the cheaper it is to build those cars. It's it's hard to keep your price per uh, per pound down with mounting and yeah. you know higher and higher mounting overhead costs. For sure, and also like freshness, you know, when something mm-hmm. there's you know there's all these you got to wait for everything in California for a lot of checks and, and balances. So if you get some California weed here, it's chances are it's got to be a couple months old, at maybe you know maybe a de- month. decent chance you know. couldn't sell it in California anymore. <laughs> for sure, for sure, that's what I'm yeah. saying. So. I think that that's important too. When the consumer is starting to see all this fresh weed and know what weed should look mm-hmm. like, that was you know a month old, that has different properties than weed that's three months old or four months old. I think that that really mm-hmm. plays into buying from your fresh local farmer or growing your own or whatever you want to do. Just getting it as fresh as possible. It's like anything, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can get it when it was right made, you know, just as soon as it was made or cured or to perfection. That's when you want to try to get that product and whatever oh yeah <laughs> especially on the east coast for the longest time right it was last summer's outdoor of course that i mean that was got, you know yeah it's interesting how the the market used to be just controlled by like oh it's a drought it's like i don't know it's <laughs> funny yep and now we're back into normal things well let's uh let's pivot into some questions here and if you guys want to pipe in let me know if you got any commentary sure. So that, uh, to me at least, entirely depends on what you mean by transplant. If you're going directly into the pot, it's definitely a good idea to veg. If you're stacking, you can go either way. And really, in both situations, you could flip right away. Um, in terms of a rooting in strategy, what you're going to do is go ahead, and ideally, you're going to have some sort of soil moisture sensor, ideally Arteros 12 or a Solus. But, you know, when you're rooting in, there's two factors, right? We want that media to dry out to get enough pore space for those roots to penetrate and have them follow that water table downward. But we don't want to wait so long to hit the point where, hey, we've got this pot in this room. It's warming up to like 80 degrees. It's full of water and now there's no oxygen in it. So we get a bacterial bloom, aka root rot. Uh, so what we're doing is giving it a very small amount of water every single day one to two shots at a tiny percentage and just watching that water line fall from you know if you're in rock wool 65 to 75 percent in cocoa usually anywhere between 45 and 65 depending on your brand you want to see that water content fall all the way down at least 15 to even 20 25 percent before introducing any true p1s that would bring it back up the field capacity and really all that's doing is we're giving the root space to grow and then that pulsing is pushing growth downward. Water moves with gravity. Those roots follow the water. Um, can they sense gravity? We've talked about it before a little bit. But, you know, when we look at like a rock wool slab, for instance, those roots go down. That water's wicking out. Those roots follow it everywhere they can. Uh, I mean, that is definitely what we do because Seth is our consultant. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, but we, we do 0.3 gallons into one gallon, and then we do the 1% shot when it's flipped into flour, and then um, when it reaches the 10 to 15% indifference in the water capacity, uh, water content, then we start vegetative bulking. 
vegetative cues. Yeah. Getting it dry back, making sure you're established instead of overwatering. And I think that's the key, you know, I mean, we're, we're always looking at these graphs and I, I think there's a tendency to kind of over pontificate on the data. Sometimes you get so obsessed with making what's on the screen look correct. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of this whole thing too, is like when, if you kind of follow that strategy, I just told you, you'll watch your plant root in and get a good idea. And it's not going to be a mystery anymore. Why yep. you have some plants in the room that you're just like, man, these things won't root in, but I'm dumping water on them every day. Like, okay, you're drowning those. Still use your your own uh, visual analysis to, you know, document and register plant health. Um, yeah, when you're limited like that, and I, I guess what you're saying is you, you have no ability to go to 3P one shots ever. And that, that makes, I can't think of why exactly you'd be limited in P1 for generative, but in vegetative, if you're running out of total irrigations in the day, that is a good way to preserve EC because you do want to build EC and uh, it's not the most efficient. I'm definitely going to say that. But when you're pushing that 4.5, you're going back to kind of the old wash it to exactly what you want that root zone EC to be. Um, if you're pushing off that extra runoff, hey, that's a side result. And if you're pushing 4.5 EC, obviously, as your plant's smaller, you're going to keep washing it back to 4.5. And as you hit a point where you're you can get it right up to field capacity with your P1s and then maybe put on a P2. Now you can bring that back to your 3.0 and start modulating. So I guess that's a decent strategy. Um, let me review the question again. But really, I mean, we're talking about kind of a Band-Aid situation. Um, one thing I would look at and I always recommend to people, if you are in a situation where you have automated drip irrigation, you've got 24 valve, sol 24 volt solenoid valves, uh, you've got the basic hardware, but your controller is a little bit lackluster. Um, I can say in the past, I've spent way more money going to the hardware store and buying something that was meant to run like golf course sprinklers than if I just would have invested 150 bucks into open sprinkler and thrown that in place. So. What you're doing, that 4.5 is great. That's going to keep washing you up or down to a 4.5. And then your P3s or your P2s at that 3.0 are going to have not a whole lot of effect so long as you're not continuing to push that runoff. But if I were you, I would definitely, and we can talk about this in the future, Daniel, um, look at figuring out a better control system that's really going to allow you to have the control you want and not have to back into these corners. Excellent. Um, P, we'll just move on. Uh, looks like PHX Mars. I'm feeding at a let's see PHX as I'm dialing in feed string by a runoff pH. Should I keep increasing feed strength until my runoff pH is closer matching my input nutrient pH? Um, so when we're talking about runoff pH, what we're looking at is how much fertilizer the plant's actually pulling out of that solution, right? So continuing to increase your feed EC is actually changing a variable and making it more difficult for you to stabilize that pH in your, in your root zone. What you want to do is if you're underfeeding, you're going to want to bring that up. So if you were feeding at a 2.2, let's go up to a 3.0. If you're at a 3.0, maybe go up to a 3.5 to help reset that ionic balance. 
But when we're talking about pH, typically we want to see a slight drop between our input pH and our output pH, at least input pH and runoff pH, because that tells us that the plant's actually pulling nutrients out of solution. And we you know, typically are going to see a little bit of a range that's perfectly acceptable in those runoff pHs. You know, we've talked about it before, running down below a 5.2 or even a 5.0. That's where I'm going to start looking for signs of overall plant deficiency even if I'm above, let's say, a 4.0 EC. Now, there's a bunch of problems that can look like that, and uh, deficiency is deficiency when we're talking pH. You're going to get out of pH range, starve your plant. Um, on the flip side, <laughs> if my pH looks okay and my EC is really low, I might just be starving my plant. If I'm running, you know, 850 to 1,000 ppfd with a 2.0 to a 3.0 EC inside the root zone, there's a decent chance that that plant's just going to take up more than I could even put on. So that's kind of where we want to go with that. I'm in cocoa nice. with 6.0 pH, getting 5.3 runoff, and increased feeding inputs. So 5.3 is not too concerning. Um, I would continue feeding the 6 pH, getting 5.3 runoff. If you increase, it depends on what your feed inputs are. So if your feed input is, let's say, a 2.5 right now, I would probably up it to a 3.0 or a 3.5, but that depends on what your EC in the root zone is doing. So if your root zone EC is low, then we're going to pick that up. If your root zone EC is high, we're still going to pick it up a little bit, but basically pushing more of that feed through is going to, at a slow rate, is going to do more to reset that ionic balance than messing with your pH too much. So I'd keep feeding at the six. Again, like I said, probably raise it too much, but I wouldn't raise that feed EC very much at all. Really, we just want to push it out. And then next time, usually what that means, if that pH got too low, probably didn't stack enough salt up in the media to not get that pH swing as the plant is pulling it out. So next run, goals are, all right, we're flipping with a higher EC in the root zone. That way we're not getting behind on building that EC, which generally if you can't build EC, you're also driving down pH as the plant's pulling those negative ions out. Awesome. Uh, another question from Instagram, the, the chemical grower wants to know how easy is it to stack the EC in pure cocoa with bottom feeders, say with drippers? uh bottom feeding like blood and drain style or are we dripping on top because if you're going like a full flood and drain you can flood all the way up to the edge of that pot uh in general it's going to be your your ec is going to be really easy to control it's going to be about whatever your feed is because you're going to wash and rinse that all the time and then you'll have some buildup. um typically if you really want to control that ec in the root zone though i would try to get away from bottom feeding because Basically, we want that soil to be washed all the time. We're trying to reset that pH and reset that nutrient balance constantly. So in a bottom feeding situation, basically we've got wicking action, bringing moisture upward into the media. And we've got roots that can go down, you know, into the bottom or even out the bottom of the media into a water space. But we're not effectively washing that root zone. And that's why you don't see bottom feeding too much. Um, can it work? Definitely. 
but is it leaving control on the table in terms of what you can actually do to affect that root zone EC? Absolutely. And that's kind of why we've seen, you know, look at hydroponic growing over the last 30 years. You've got like nutrient film trays, we got ebb and flow, we've got deep water culture. And in the end, the one that gives us the most control over the plant and allows us to have the most effect on plant morphology is going to a soilless media because it turns out plants have evolved for millions and millions and millions, you know, hundreds of millions of years, in fact, to grow in a soil-like media. They're very evolved to pull nutrients up out of soil. Um, the role of soil physics in plant, in plant physiology is actually pretty important when we look at root formation. You know, we get a different type of root formation in deep water culture or even nutrient film. So uh, at the end of the day, the best way that we can grow the plant and affect change is actually to have a top feed system that saturates the moisture and takes advantage of gravity to homogenize that mixture and then allow runoff to occur that's actually rinsing the soil out. So Dexter, Virginia, do you have anything to add to that as far as controlling EC and how you irrigate? Um. I mean, there's, I mean, there's sometimes that I've had issues or I like, I missed a feed or my barrel has gone empty and, you know, I'd have to like pull back a shot to like even it back out. It's just like a balancing game. Yeah. One thing I've got to say about Dexter and Virginia is they entered the space without a lot of preconceived notions. So I think one conversation we've never had to approach is uh, I think I'm giving them too much salt. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's true. And yes. You guys can attest it's pretty amazing once you start watching that day to day when you do have like, you know, your res runs out and you're like, oh, didn't plan for that. We're missing a couple mm -hmm. shots. It's pretty yeah, amazing you know. what these plants will take, right? Yeah, you could tell immediately though when you're watching the graph, like, oh, it's yep. something's not right. Yeah. You got to go check your water. And that's great. I mean, yeah. And then you guys never have to see the bad control. results. You, well, yeah. you guys never have to see the bad results pretty quickly. Yeah. You're like, oh, we can handle that. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, that type of stuff you catch in that. I mean, all that's so important. You know, all that's so important. It can take out the fun of growing and, you oh, know, yeah. it, it makes your life that's new to the game. It's, you got to really, have those types of uh you know fail safes in place to help you is hard you know you and i also make a joke that we like live in a circus so stuff is happening all the time so that just like honestly makes my life in the grow so much easier because i could just see something's wrong and i go in and i can see immediately uh let's move on pro drybacks asks on instagram what causes a strain that normally turns all purple, like LCG, stay all green? Uh, there's, there's a few factors to look at there. And this is, again, where uh, looking at time series data is going to be your friend, especially with respect to the environment. You know, one thing, one big factor in purple that we always talk about is temperature. A lot of strains need a pretty big temperature differential to turn purple. so. We're talking about LCG, for instance. I personally have seen one grower who has several rooms, some are LED, some are HPS. The thing they bang their head against is saying like, oh, why 
why is it purple every time we grow under HPS, but not necessarily LED? And a big part of that is like, hey, we're, we're hitting our 10 degree dip, right? We're getting 78 in the day, 68 at night, 75, 65, but we're seeing the dip in the HPS, but not the LED. One straight up reason is that HPS is projecting more radiant energy onto the plant, which is heating up that leaf surface. So if the ambient room temperature is 75, but we've got an HPS versus an LED, that 10 degree ambient temperature differential that we see from the day to the night might actually be more like 15 or 16 degrees on a lot of parts of the plant just because that light turned off. So that's that's one thing to look at is like that overnight temperature differential. And, you know, if you don't have your humidity under control, you're going to lose your crop trying to run it too cold and get that purple. You're going to rot it out. So that's one thing to look at. Um, going back farther and farther, being able to go back and look at your run and see, did you have any times where you accidentally watered too frequently and too hard and push, continue to push vegetative growth that didn't allow that plant to mature inside the time window that you wanted? Because uh, when we look at this plant's life cycle, right, if we want to reach maturity, we have to hit every mark that leads up to it. So the plant needs X amount of water, X amount of salt, X amount of CO2, X amount of light, and X amount of heat. So if not all those things are balanced, we're not going to get the exact same expression. Now, uh, another thing to look at too, so heat, a big one, then like I said, uh, overwatering, but also looking back and saying, hey, did we run not enough temperature differential? Another thing that can affect it is uh, basically nitrate availability. Am I over fertilizing this thing to the point where I'm encouraging it? grow and by over fertilizing I don't necessarily mean running a high EC but for this particular strain have I been running potentially too low of an EC is it too comfortable in the sweet spot but basically um, if it's not purpling there's you know we're either not guiding it towards through senescence or you know dying back of the plant ending its life cycle we're doing something to extend that or we're not hitting one of those marks so the biggest thing I would encourage you to do is go back and uh get as much documentation as you can and start reviewing these runs at the end and look for those outlying data sets. Look for anomalies that are outside of your normal ranges. And then from there, we can go, okay, here's something that's outside. How does this typically affect the plant? You know, if we're talking about water content, like, hey, you did not get enough water availability to your plants for 30 days during your flower cycle, like we're probably going to expect to see some yield loss between lack of water and probably EC problems being all over the place. Um, and we look at, you know, EC, for instance, on that same plant, we could have a plant that's looking for more or less, and their expression is going to change whether we got more or less. So those are all factors to look at. And, you know, even, uh, even your light intensity in the last two weeks of flower can start to affect that. You know, certain plant processes rely on a certain amount of light energy input to move those pathways along, you know, like if we're talking about maturity, a good thing to check is did your purple LCG test uh, lower in THCA and higher in THC than your green version? Because if your green version tested really high in THCA, but low in THC compared to your other purple version, basically that means you probably should have just let it keep going longer. You know, the, uh, the reality is something you did along the way I, either that or you cut it down earlier, but something along the way extended that determinate life cycle of this plant. It didn't get all the inputs it needed to finish at that point, and it needed more time to gather and, and you know, basically not ingest, but uptake 
and fix more of those inputs. So those are a few things to start looking at. And, you know, one thing I like to point out to people, if you, uh, when we're talking about these plants, you know, 63 or 58 days, 57, 56 in flower, even a plant, if we're going a two week veg, a two month flower cycle, that's not that many days that that plant is actually alive. So anytime you miss a mark, whether it's light, heat, uh, water, CO2, we're slowing down production efficiency. So not only is that necessarily leaving grams on the table, but when it comes to light and heat and even AC, we might just be extending the life of that plant. So those are a few things to look at in certain strains. Time is a factor. I've certainly grown strains that no matter what I do, if I try to harvest them in eight weeks, I can get them to look more finished, but the quality and the test results will speak for themselves compared to letting that same strain grow 10 weeks. I'm sure, I'm sure Dexter and Virginia have seen that a bunch with their pheno hunts and testing a strain through a few mm -hmm. runs. Like sometimes, sometimes you just have to be patient. And then if you're in a bigger facility, yeah. I mean, this is where you guys have freedom, right? <laughs> That's what's awesome about being yeah. boutique is you can make those business calls yourselves and say, yeah. maybe we want to take a chance and do a 10 week run yeah. and we'll try to put our 10 week strains in there and, Cool. We'll do a you know a couple time a year release when we do that. Uh, if you were in a much bigger situation, like hey, we can't run more than eight weeks. That doesn't work with our business plan. Like okay, how important is it that we put this strain out? I mean, I'm sure even in your pheno hunts, you've run into some weirdos where it's like, oh, this thing is amazing, but it is not going to be profitable. No, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, and it always sucks. I, I had a cut of this strain called Candyland years and years ago that one of my favorite strains to run and grow, super easy, but it was a semi-dwarf. Okay, so what am I going to do, veg it for six weeks to try to get it big enough? Like, no, this is just kind of a novelty strain at this point that's, well, more for a boutique or home grower than yeah. it is for commercial production. Yeah, we have we have a bunch of those that are like special and we could just never get rid of them. We just like keep recloning it, keep it small. Yeah, and that's that's what you guys are allowed to, you know, kind of explore that niche. That's what's awesome about your position in the market is you you can push some of those strains just because you're not going like, hey, I need to blow this up to 10,000 square feet of canopy and, you know, make a huge profit off of it. Like as long as I hit a certain weight in this room, I'm going to be okay because I know if I grow this exotic strain, I'm at least going to get a good price premium on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and in, you know, the boutique space, it's also, the, the growing aspect's certainly not easier, <laughs> but, um, you know, just like you guys said with the, the, local, the local factor, farmer's market style, people are willing to put a little bit more premium on their product because they know that it's actually going to stay more local mm -hmm. and have a better impact on the people who are producing that product. You know, when I buy, uh, when I buy Coors <laughs> versus going to the brewery, here in town, you know, I know that five bucks that I give the brewery isn't going to get low, you know, more of it's going to make it yeah. back to the producer and not get lost in the supply chain packaging, et cetera. Okay. All right. So we've got about 10, 10 minutes left on the show and YouTube's super lively. Promise we'll get to all these questions eventually, not today, but we'll probably do a special show just to cover these questions since there are so many. Um, Golden Child wants to know, 
I'm growing in one gallon pots with bio 365 soilless mix. And he's, he's trying to hit a three to 5% dryback in between P2s. What would you consider too long of a wait to hit that three to 5% before worry? Um, if you got to wait more than three hours, that's probably a sign, but the, the key here is that, that time. So when we're looking at crop steering in general, um, there's perfect situations and there's imperfect situations and 99% of situations are imperfect, right? There's some variable that we're dealing with that's tough to get under control. So if you're looking at your, your afternoon drybacks, um, you know, that 1% is a minimum we look for when bulking. And part of that isn't so much, uh, there's a physiological reason for 1% or 3%. It's more about logistics and timing. A 3% dryback, you're waiting longer and effectively putting less irrigations on in the day. And that's the signal. The plant can't count from three to five or one to three. So it's that spacing we're looking at. And if I, would, if I wanted to bulk, but I wasn't getting the dryback rate that I assume I want, and really 1% per hour is a decent dryback rate in the daytime. That's telling, if you're, if you're exceeding that, if you're hitting 3%, 5% per hour, we're probably not going to be able to pull back into ripening. Your plant's probably too big for that pot to finish properly or finish uh, in an ideal way according to our irrigation strategies. So I would look at changing that up just a little bit and maybe going to more like a 1% P2. And then also keep in mind, you know, when we're switching from generative over into bulking, general rule of thumb is double your irrigations, cut the volume and the time in half, the time between irrigations in half. And then with those P2s, you know, we're waiting on that dryback, but by optimizing the number of shots we can get in, in that P1, we're getting those shots in, we're bulking that up. And if anything, we can stretch out that P1 a little longer. We're not seeing that afternoon dryback go quite as fast as we want. But on the flip side, there's a lot of strains. And I know these two can attest to that. Some of them you, you aren't going to get very many P2s on, and that's totally okay. You might get one or two sometimes, but when you're doing that, you're pushing more towards quality and less towards, you know, over bulking it. He's like, you guys, you know, honey, it's all over the place, right? <laughs> Some strains yeah. are just sucking it yeah. up. Others aren't. You got to go. Pretty much okay. like our P2s are like 1% is like about 40 minutes. Yep. And then on some strains, right, you're not going to even we're not going to try it at one percent yeah You're definitely like, hey, some, you could definitely see because we have each sensor we have each table and we try to have one cultivar for each sensor each table and you they're different they're all different so mm -hmm. yeah and they, they have to be treated differently it's just the way it goes and then, you know there there is some of that um you know we talk about like growing ogs and some of those older strains that are known to be like oh this one doesn't like high levels of fertilizer this one doesn't like extra waterings there are nuggets of truth in there <laughs> observational yeah. science yeah. is not definitive but someone noticed something for a reason there's a continued correlation so sometimes you got to step back and go okay what's why is this plant freaking out and go uh well i did hear <laughs> that it's finicky okay what are my levers where i may be pushing it too hard and a lot of times we'll see that uh especially with modern fertilizers if you're running you know 
a single mix all the way through flower, there are strains that will respond to that those bulking signals negatively. So like if I'm growing a GMO or even sour diesel, I don't really hit a very hard bulk pattern myself just because I know if I do that, I might see some continued stretching. I might see weird bud formation that I don't want to get. So yeah. uh, as we always say, that, that dryback number is a lot of different things put together. If it's not doing what you expect, um, be patient. And you're always going to be rewarded with better flower by being patient and putting on less frequency than if you try to focus solely on pushing that bulking for yield. Awesome. All right. I wanted to get this, get to this question from South Africa, Jason, what do you think of using calcium sulfate as a pH buffer in cocoa? As a pH buffer, I guess my question would be, are you watering that in or are you somehow mixing straight powdered calcium sulfate into your media? I know when we talked about pH buffers in cocoa back in the day, we'd be talking about calcium carbonate, azomite, you know, some of your more traditional uh, soil amendments, for lack of a better word, that people would use in their garden to buffer pH in more of a living soil system. Um, as far as using calcium sulfate, the only problem when you're using any calcium ion complex is you've got to look at what is that attached to. So in terms of calcium sulfate, um, maybe not the best because that's going to throw off our sulfur ratios in the rest of the mix and also possibly do some other weird things that I might have to break out some molecules and look at and draw around. <laughs> That's why when we're looking at, you know, some of our different things to pH actual systems, you know, if we're using like sulfuric acid, for instance, that's not bad. But what I got to look at is how much am I putting in? At the end of the day, is that throwing it off? Like here where, where I live personally, if, uh, you know, the water comes out of the ground at 7.2, sometimes 7.5. If I'm not feeding a lot, if I'm, if I'm feeding at a really low EC, like if I mix up a 1.5 EC, I'm dumping enough either sulfuric or phosphoric acid in there to actually throw off my NPK ratios. Uh, on the flip side, same water. Most nutrient companies that I'll try to I'll try out and mix up. If my water's coming out at seven seven two, I mix it up at an appropriate three point zero or three point five, and that water is coming out at like six point one, six point two. Okay, at that point, I'm adding very very little acid to fix that pH range. So that's kind of where you need to balance it. Like, what am I adding? And then, you know, what else is that complex coming with? Because, you know, another good example, I guess, is calcium, <clears throat> calcium nitrate. You know, that's our common uh, nitrogen base used in a lot of single mix fertilizers. And that's because it also comes with calcium, right? Those are two things we want. And since we're only going down to basically one nitrogen source, that calcium is just a bonus. Uh, however, you know, in that situation, Calcium nitrate does have its own drawbacks because then you can't pull your nitrogen back without losing out on calcium. And that's sometimes where we'll come in with calciums like or products like calcium silicate to help keep calcium in while we're pulling nitrate back. But if we're talking about using uh, calcium sulfate in the traditional buffer sense, like mixed into your physical cocoa, I would probably lean away from that because uh, over the years we've just found, you know, cocoa is a true soilless media. We can pretty well control it. Um, it has very low cation exchange capacity. It can't hold on to many things. 
So it's better to directly control with inputs what's going on in the root zone than try to mix in a buffering agent that we're dealing with where it's actually holding on to some things, letting go of other things, and then slowly being rinsed out of the pot and having less effect over time. So in short, I would probably not use that. If you uh, do, write, write it down, record it, take pictures, because uh, every once in a while someone does have an idea that's helpful. And, and sometimes we're limited on what we can get, right? Um, there's certain products that are really popular in the U.S., but if you live in Canada or Europe, I wouldn't recommend buying them because you're going to be waiting for a long time for that to clear customs. Yeah. Good. His question yeah, stuff. Is, is sourced from South Africa, so I don't know if uh, all the rules are interchangeable. Well, and is it is it a supply chain issue? Because um, there, there's also certain products, you know, like we talk about peroxides and cleaning products and stuff like that. They don't have a long shelf life in shipping. So there are certain areas of the world and I happily reach out to me sometime with email or whatever, because I'm curious to know why that's what you're leaning towards. If it's a supply chain issue, local availability, that's the best you can get. What's going on there? Well, I think that's going to do it for episode 76. Uh, I wanted to thank Virginia and Dexter, Medusa's Eden, coming on the show with us today. Be sure to check out their case study on uh, Arroyo.io. Learn more about their operation, their history, and what their plans are for the future. Uh, I want to thank Seth for coming on today. Uh, The show will be back next week with Keisha, I promise. And it'll be smoother on the the production side. But... uh, for anyone interested in, in Arroyo, go ahead and book a demo at Arroyo.io and we'll have one of our experts get in touch with you. And if you'd like to have a, a topic covered in office hours, uh, post questions anytime in the Arroyo app, drop your questions in chat or on YouTube, send us an email at sales or sales at Arroyo.io, DM us on all the socials. We do the Instagram, the TikTok, the YouTube, the LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. We want to hear from you. And uh, for everyone in attendance, we'll send a link today to the show, and we'll be back next week. So from Pullman and from wherever you're joining us, have a great day. Take care. Take care. Thanks, guys. It was nice to see you. Have a good day. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software repeat successful runs, and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.